Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 9th, 2013, and my guest is Pete Betke of George Mason University. His latest book is Living Economics. Pete, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ, for having me. Uh, our subject for today is your book, Living Economics. But before we get into that, I want to talk about uh, James Buchanan, who just passed away this morning. And there's a chapter in the book on his on his uh, contribution to economics. I'd like you to start by summarizing that. What what was important about Jim Buchanan and his and his work? Well, about Professor Buchanan, I'd like to say uh, two things. Uh, first, uh, one is on a personal level, he was my teacher and a, and a role model in many ways. And when I came here to George Mason to go to graduate school, um, he had just moved to from VPI to George Mason. He created the sort of PhD program at George Mason and instilled in all of us this idea of daring to be different, uh, which was his motto. And he said, we never wanted to be the MIT of the Potomac, uh, but instead to have our own, uh, you know, reasons for excellence. And he really did, uh, me and my classmates really benefited tremendously. I had him before he won the Nobel Prize. Um, so he was around all the time and had that great experience and whatnot. And then, of course, you know, when he won the Nobel Prize in 1986, it was a thrill for all of us because um, we had all made the choice to go in a kind of an unconventional way by going to George Mason to begin with rather than traditional graduate programs and then to be able to say our professor had done that. And he created a niche for us in the profession, which I think was extremely important. Um, and then he was very supportive of young people all the way through. Um, on a Intellectual level, the reason why you get drawn to Jim Buchanan is um, an analytical uh, set of arguments within economics, the most important of which is the demand of behavioral symmetry. The way that I study individuals in the marketplace is the same way that I'm going to study them in the uh, voting booth or in any other walk of life. And traditional economics, textbook economics, had suffered from what Buchanan and Tulloch would refer to as the Roman emperor problem. Roman emperors asked to judge a singing contest between two contestants, and upon hearing the first, gives the award to the second under the assumption that clearly the second couldn't be any worse than the first. This was the old market <laughs> failure, government correction, you know, kind of idea. Because we don't like the way the world is. Obviously, we should use government because – yeah. We don't like the way the world is. So we see the the market fail, and then we say, "Oh, government is a Deus Moxie, uh, you know, can fix it." Deus ex machina. Yeah, and, and so Buchanan, by forcing us to do this behavioral symmetry, said that look, if people in the marketplace are you know doing these things because they're greedy, well, what's it like when we look at politicians when they're greedy, uh, rather than looking at people in the marketplace as greedy, but people in politics as angels. So you couldn't do that. Man was neither sinner nor saint. He's sort of both this complex character and you do that. Very Smithian. Yeah. And Buchanan is a modern Smithian. Like Hayek, I think you could make a claim that he uh, is the most Smithian of modern economists, right? Um, but um, then there's a whole host of other things that he applies this idea to. Um, when he won the Nobel Prize, one of his lines was they asked him to sum up 
you know, his position, which is similar to, you know, the way they asked James Tobin. They asked James Tobin and he said, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That was his contribution that he got the Nobel Prize for portfolio management. Yeah. Yeah. And Buchanan. Kind of an embarrassing line because, right, we all know that. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's a good idea already, but he formalized it a bit. Yeah. But Buchanan said, don't let the fox guard the chicken coop. Which is about like who guards the guardians kind of thing. And in particular, in reference to the public debt, because Buchanan really was a, uh, made his or cut his uh, professional teeth on the issue of the public debt and the burden of debt. And at the time that he was coming into, um, professional, um, sort of prominence in economics was at a, a heyday of the Keynesian revolution. And it, it's not just on, you know, monetary discretion, but the Keynesians were really the old fiscalists, right? That's why we call it monetarists. You know, fiscal policy is effective. Monetary policy is not effective. Friedman came along, you know, to point out that we needed them to worry about money, right, on the money side. So but Buchanan, rather than emphasizing the monetary policy side, um, went after the micro foundations of fiscal policy. And he asked the question in reference to the standard functional finance position, which is that you uh, don't worry about balancing the budget, worry about using the budget to balance the economy. And the belief was from Lerner and all those people that you would balance the budget over the life of the business cycle, right? So you would run deficits in times of recession, you would run surpluses in times of plenty, and then you would balance the budget over the life of the business cycle. And Buchanan simply asked the question, what are the uh, electoral incentives, right, that politicians face that would ever make them want to do exactly that? You could see why you want to run deficits during times of recession, but why would you ever want to run the surpluses in times of plenty? And so as a result, you end up by getting permanent deficit financing. Which he was on to something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, uh, so to me, ever since 2008, I've, I've, you know, people ask me, how do I understand what's going on? And I say, prerequisite reading are uh, Hayek's Tiger by the Tail and Buchanan's Democracy and Deficit, which is to explain – and the connection between those two. And that's what I personally still think is going to be the undoing of our – or the unwinding of this current situation is that we've done, you know, deficits, debt, and debasement. And right, we haven't gotten completely to the debasement part of the situation yet. But boy, we're getting close. Yeah, we're getting close. Last week, uh, there began to be a discussion of a trillion dollar coin that would be minted. I I, I don't even, for those of you you listening who haven't heard about it, it, um, it, it's just a legalistic fiction to allow the government to print. A lot of money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can get on the web if you want to read more about it. It's not worth talking about, but it's just yeah. – it, it's a further step down the road toward debasement. Although, as yeah. you point out, there hasn't been much, if any. Been but very, th- little, very little inflation and yeah. the uh, anti-monetarists have used that fact, which it is a fact, to prove that we're overly worried about inflation. Right. But I think that if you uh, – just to put things in historical perspective – I believe it's accurate to say that Arthur Burns was the first one to try to do this Operation Twist in the late 60s, in which what you do is you try to suppress long-term interest rates at the same time while you're trying to stimulate the economy in the short run by pushing down short-term interest rates, and that the Fed is doing both. And that's because you want to make sure you mute the signal that the short-run 
stimulus, monetary stimulus, is as, going to have long-run long inflation. Long-run consequence. That's and, really interesting. But I, to, to, to link this back to – it is – I don't want to go into a thing about contemporary policy necessarily, but Adam Smith – in the Wealth of Nations, in the fifth book of the Wealth of Nations, refers to the juggling trick that governments engage in, ancient as well as modern. And it, the juggling trick is that they run deficits that then accumulate into public debts, which then they debase their currencies. And his argument in there is, remember, in the fifth book of the Wealth of Nations, he's giving advice to the statesmen, right, that you need to sort of do. And he's basically saying, look, we have to stop government from engaging these juggling tricks, which is going to be rules that bind the government. And in large part, that's what Buchanan ends up by working his career on, right, is on what are the rules by which we can get the government to be bound but yet still effective at doing the things that they can do well. So the last thing I would say about Buchanan um, is is that I think it his, the, the work that he did on social philosophy and political economy is extremely important in the way that he analytically – distinguishes between the productive state, the protective state, and the redistributive state. And the puzzle, the constitutional puzzle that Buchanan – Just quickly explain those terms. Okay, so protective state is like police, law, law the cr criminal justice system, uh, judges and whatnot. Productive and then state or productive roads state would be roads. Bridges that yeah. are, and then the redistributive state – we know what that is. Yeah. Entitlements, Social Security. Right. And so the farm, question – Farm bills. Farm you know. bills, yeah. <laughs> and what Buchanan's puzzle is constitutionally is, is can I un can I empower the protective and productive state without unleashing the redistributive state? And it turns out in the 20th century we haven't been very successful at doing that. And that becomes our puzzle. Now, how do I think through that of the constitutional project? Um, it's also the project that Madison cared about, right? I mean – and uh, right. Madison said, if men were angels, there'd be no need for government. If government would be run by angels, there'd be no need for constraints. But it's precisely because men are going to rule over other men. We must empower. That would be the protective and the productive. But then constrain, which would be tighten up the redistributive. And so it turns out that Buchanan's effort, while we might say that it hasn't proven to be as effective as we would like, let's say trying to constrain the fiscal side of the state or or the redistributive side of the state, the way he thought about it is the way that I think all of us should be thinking about it to try to, you know, examine these kind of questions, especially in light of this. And then if you think about it, our current situation, our debate in Washington, D.C., in my opinion, is completely misdirected uh, because it's all about, you know, the revenue side. And really, it has to be on the spending yeah. side. Or you think about it this way, it's all about the scale of government. You know, what's the size of GDP in relationship to uh, size of government debt in relationship to GDP? When I think what we should be thinking about is questions of the scope of government. Totally agree. Right? And if you fix Keynes, I mean, this is probably the last time I'll say something good about Keynes here today. But Keynes had a great quip, which he said, you cannot make a fat man skinny by tightening his belt. You have to make a fat man skinny and then his belt is looser, right? And then he can wear a smaller belt. That's what we – that was a question of scope, not of scale. Yeah, that's a fabulous oh, – those are two fabulous uh, metaphors, that one and then just – metaphor is not the right word, but that framework for thinking about the state as productive, protective, and redistributive I think is – it's that's a good way to yeah. organize your thinking. And it's – the other thing, the last thing about Buchanan, which we say is that 
you know, he's a, a classic example of how, uh, you know, right thinking in economics, they tend to have long and productive lives. Buchanan was still writing papers. I saw him give a paper this summer in August, all right, which many of my colleagues were at as well. And he said, I don't really like the way it looks right now. I have to keep working on it, you know, and he's 93 years old and he's still fresh in his mind and still working on that stuff. And it was just amazing to hear him uh, talk. The metaphor that he used, um, I think that's the right word here, or analogy that he used to explain the budget deficit was he said, imagine that you belong to a uh, lunch club and you go out to eat for lunch, right? And then what goes on is that you e agree to equally split the bill. Then how is everyone going to decide how it is that they're going to do things? All of a sudden, that cannoli that, you know, you might have thought, you know, a little bit about now, all of a sudden you spread it between 12 people. Hey, it only costs me 50 cents. I'm willing to buy that cannoli, right? Well, I, I've never heard that coming from Buchanan, but I wrote a piece with the same logic. Have to, we'll put a link up to it. It's, I think, also the right way to think about yeah. our problem. His and whole thing was – and then what he was thinking about was – this is what I'm saying. He's 93 years old and he's thinking, OK, how can I get back to a constitutional rule which will not decouple the spending decision from the taxing decision? So instead, the tax and spend decisions are closer coupled with one yeah, another, like sure. user fees or something like that. How can I do that? And, that you know, Buchanan's thinking through that at 93, and the rest of us are in the room. We're like, wow, that's a novel idea. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that make sense? You know, and, and the thing of a genius is someone who, when they say something, it seems so obvious after they say it. But before they say it, you never thought about it, right? Yeah. Well, my um, – it's ironic because – doing the dishes this morning and actually thinking about that metaphor and being depressed about it and how when you go out with your friends and you split the check because it's convenient, right. uh, you don't order the fancy champagne for yourself or the expensive steak and because you don't want to impose the cost on your friends if they're all getting a hamburger with, right. with a Coke. When it's a – when it's – 330 million people in the room yeah. and most of them are your strangers, you need some cultural restraints on yeah. overeating. But if you think everybody else is overeating You're good and taking it. advantage of you because they're going to be able to pull money out of your pocketbook, you think, well, I'm, I'm a sucker if I restrain myself. Right. So you need something to restrain that redistributive force. Uh, it used to be culture. It used to be the constitution. I think we've lost both of those. Yeah. I was thinking about it because I was, I was looking at the um, – not looking at it, but reading about the fiscal cliff, quote, resolution. The idea that there would be pork and earmarks in that bill is just – one dimension, it's repulsive, and the other, it's business as usual. Yeah. And the fact that the people who put that in there weren't ashamed of it in a time when we're running trillion-dollar yeah. deficits is uh, – tells you everything I think you need to know about the current state of American political economy. But yeah. let's go back to your book. Yeah. Um, one of the themes that runs – through the book you open with this, is uh, you make a distinction between mainline and mainstream, and that distinction you take from Kenneth Boulding. Yeah. Talk about uh, that distinction and why – what it means and why it's important. Well, one of the things that has always struck me in my career, again, you know, going back to Buchanan and Boulding and us, part of what Buchanan taught us when he taught us to be there to be different is that we were doing good economics. You know, there's an old quip by Milton Friedman that, you know, there is no Austrian economics, there's no Chicago economics, there's no – all there is is good economics and bad economics. <clears throat> and you can agree with Friedman on that. We want to just be good economists. 
we just happen to think that a lot of the themes that are in Austrian economics are things that constitute what it means to do good economics or public choice or, or whatnot. And um, but the, the reality is, is that I've always found it strange when people said, oh, your view isn't mainstream. Well, it's the view that, you know, Adam Smith had and John B and John Baptista say and, you know, and uh, and Hayek and and Hayek and Buchanan and Ronald Coase and all these other Nobel, Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's, these. it's not a it's not a, a bunch of kooks. Right. <laughs> And so, you know, I hear people say this all the time and then this language that Bolding used all the time to talk about Adam Smith. He has a an essay um, called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? And his argument is we all do because Adam Smith is still part of our extended present uh, in the conversation, meaning that there's still fruitful things to learn from Adam Smith for the way we do economics today. And I think that, it, you know, if you look at someone like a, a – um, as you mentioned, you know, just Hayek, Buchanan, Coase, uh, these people all viewed themselves as being in the seat of Adam Smith. So the men who sit in the seat of Adam Smith. So then what I try to do in the book is, okay, so who are the men or women who sit in the seat of Adam Smith and their ideas? What is it that substantively, you know, captures that idea? And I think it's this idea of the self-interest postulate which does not mean selfishness and it doesn't mean lightning calculators of peasant, uh, pleasure and pain. It simply means that individuals pursue what they want to pursue as best as they can given their situation. And are a little bit more focused on themselves than other people. Yeah. Which is undeniably true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You can still be an altruist. You can yeah. still give to charity. You can still be nice to your wife. Right. You can spend time with your family. Right. But you care mostly about yourself and the people near you than right. you do about other people. This and so that's one postulate. And then the other one is the invisible hand, the self-regulating aspects of the market. And mainline economics is how is it that I square this one proposition, self-interest proposition, with the invisible hand? That things sort of work out pretty well most of the time. And the way <laughs> that we do it, what we find is that all of those economists that I mentioned – do it by way of institutional analysis. It's the private property market economy. And the key thing is there, it's the private property market economy. They don't say, Adam Smith never said individuals pursuing their self-interest under any conceivable set of circumstances Correct. will generate a publicly desirable outcome. And as you point out in the book, he had lots of examples where things came out badly. Give, yeah. give a, just mention a couple of those. Uh, teaching, well, yeah. religious act, activity. Yeah. Just, His, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's funny – the way he does it, especially in the context of this book, which talks a lot about teaching, is that Smith contrasts the teachers in Scotland who were actually paid by the student fees directly versus in, in Oxford where they were paid based on the endowment and they were tenured. And he talks about how the professors that were tenured at Oxford would get up in front of the class and literally read the book, whereas the professors in in uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh, right, would actually like respond, you know, to the students, you know, uh, try to, you know, make sure that they were teaching them the right things and everything like that. And so and with regard to religious education, he uses the issue of whether or not you have a state sponsored church or a, you know, uh, voluntary contribution church. And his argument is that religiosity rises much more when you have voluntary, uh, you know, contributions to the church. Because they respond to the consumer. Because they, yeah. And, uh, and his friend David Hume, who was non-religious, 
had the same analysis, but he sponsored state churches for that. Because he wanted to get rid of it. <laughs> so it's religion an, it's, less effective. Yeah. Right, whereas Smith was, was thought religion of value, and so he wanted a free market in religion. So it's a kind of a very fascinating – I'm just going to add one more, which you mentioned in the book also. Of course, he believed that people in business would often pursue their own self-interest to the harm of others right. if they were allowed to conspire or had a natural tendency to do that. He also saw lots of negative things about – Politicians acting right. uh, without restraint. So right. it doesn't – I just – I want to – I'm interrupting because I think it's such an important point that people who share our ideologies and philosophies uh, and our opponents get wrong, which is I don't believe – I don't think you believe that anything that's spontaneous must be good. Right. Uh, spontaneous is a fact that there are emergent forces that shape outcomes in the world around us. That's a fact. That's not something you believe in or don't believe in. What you can believe in or don't believe in is which are the right institutional forces that make spontaneous outcomes look good or not good and, and how might you might, – might they be improved or what makes them different? But this idea somehow that, that Adam Smith was – because he was in favor of, quote, laissez-faire means that he thought, oh, all government was bad uh, or that all spontaneous invisible hand-like stuff was good is not true. Yeah, it's and so <clears throat> mainline economics again, just to so you have the self-interest invisible hand reconciled through institutional analysis, and so that's a substantive set of propositions. If you go to an economist that is a mainline economist in France in the 19th century, let's say J.B. Say, and you ask him, you translate, and you say, okay, so what is it about? It means to think like an economist. And he would say, oh, well, you have self-interest. You have uh, the self-regulating aspects of the market that are achieved within a private property market economy. If you go to uh, – so that's in the French language. If you go to Ger you know, German language and speak to the early you know, Austrian economists, right, you know, Menger and Bambavrik and Wieser and whatnot, they'd say self-interest. Invisible hand reconciled through, you know, private property market economy. So much so that Mises becomes highlights private property market economy as an essential characteristic for being able to engage in economic calculation that the absence of that institution eliminates the ability to do that, which is how the system operates, right? And so it's this emphasis. Now think about how by the time we get to 1950, 1960s, you have people like Francis Bator who were famous economists at the time. You know, Samuelsonian economists say things like our goal as economists is to have an institutionally antiseptic theory. So, you know, in a large part, mainline economics stretching all the way back to Adam Smith and coming forward is um, a tradition of economics which emphasizes these various rules of the game. That which could be legal. They could be cultural. And political. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that the economy is always structured. So political economy as such, right? As opposed to economics, which is this purely technical science disembodied from institutions. And so a large part of the post, uh, 1950s resurgence of economic I thinking. I think you mean post 1948. Okay. Yeah. Because that's when Samuelson published the foundations of economic analysis, yeah. which was the begin, not the beginning, but the, a local high point of mathematical 
sophistication about how to think about human behavior. Well, it became the Bible of how to learn what, what it meant to be a serious economist. Right. Was to speak in the language that Samuelson spoke in and the way that he spoke in. And it still exists in our profession to this day. And, well, not just still exists. It is That is yeah. the mainstream as a contrast to the main line. Right. And so the difference in – so now let me go back to the mainstream. One of the things that's interesting about mainstream is note that you can't really – put a finger on what the substantive propositions are because in the mainstream you can have Joe Stiglitz who no one would deny is not a, is a mainstream economist right i mean yep. he's had Nobel prize winner a Nobel prize winner Columbia uh you know Princeton Stanford he's taught at all the main places Paul Krugman right has been at all the top places and the top journals and all these things like that um but you also have on the other side Bob Lucas right and Bob Lucas and Joe Stiglitz couldn't disagree more about substantive economics, but yet they agree completely about the, the tool, style. Uh, the toolkit. The toolkit of <laughs> economics. And so what happens is mainstream becomes a sociological moniker for people that believe methodologically what they believe at the top five schools, right? And they use and they speak in those, in that, that language. So whereas in the past, if you were a Smithian economist, you could speak in English, you could speak in French, you could speak in German, you could, you know, uh, you could speak with math, you could speak with just pure natural language. And what mattered was whether or not you believe the subset of propositions of economics. In modern economics, mainstream became are you using these tools? And it didn't really matter as much what the subset of propositions are per se. Is, think, is well, my claim. I, I think that's a little strong. I think um, – let me challenge you on that for the mainstream. The mainstream folks do have their substantive propositions. They require um, rationality. They require some dimension of equilibrium, although there's some you know, fudging or hedging about – you can be out of equilibrium, but equilibrium yeah. analysis, because it's mathematics, right. you need some equalities there. Uh, is a huge part of it. Uh, there's some attempt to formally model expectations. They can't ignore them. Uh, I think they share a lot more than just the language, the, the language of mathematics. Well, I think that what happened is one of the things is that mainstream neoclassical tools are much more absorptive than anyone might have thought. So if you come along and a critic comes along and says, if you don't deal with expectations, you're not going to be able to you know, model this, the model is able to absorb the expectations in. But what it does is it always absorbs it in a way which isn't necessarily an enhancement to the original idea, okay? So let me give you an example on this reconciliation of the invisible hand and the rationality postulate and the invisible hand. What I argue in the book is that a lot of what happens in, in modern economics is that you, the people who are free market, quote unquote, they collapse one why, onto why, the other. Why are you putting that in quotes? Because – they don't really explain the rules under which a free market operates. They, they explain the technical – There's hand-waving. Yeah, they, they explain the technical apparatus by which I can prove an efficiency proof. And so then what happens – so you – rationality. What are the conditions for rationality hypothesis? And then those feed directly right into the invisible hand conditions. And so then we get looking at a world where agents have to have full and complete information – 
right? They have to have, uh, you know, complete omniscience. So rational expectations becomes perfect foresight, right? right? Rather than the idea of people having divergent expectations, right? Sure. Or we get these puzzles in economics, which are very brilliant puzzles. Don't get me wrong here. I mean, these are amazing intellectual puzzles that people have worked on. And Samuelson, you know, since I've been going around talking about the book, people ask me about, you know, why is it that Paul Samuelson had such a big impact? Well, when you're the brightest guy and you're, and failed, you're young yeah. and you're able to do all this stuff and everyone, you know, it's quite clear that, be, that you know, Samuelson was really, really brilliant and people coalesced around him because like they do that, you know, but, but I think he sent economics in a direction which took it farther away from its Smithian roots no doubt. than brought it closer to it. And that part of the, the post-Samuelson kind of period of what things that we at, like say, George Mason and, and, uh, you know, care about as economists, sort of the law and economics revolution, the public choice revolution, the uh, sort of property rights theory of the firm sort of revolution, all of those kind of things, new institutionalism in general, entrepreneurship and market process theory, all of those things are things that the classical economists for more or less hinted at, or at least, and sometimes explicitly talked about, like we were mentioning about with Adam Smith. Sure, public choice and Skepticism about the motivations of politicians. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Adam Smith talking about religious leaders. You could also say that about politicians under yeah. democratic election, you know, all these kind of things. And so um, we had to recapture a lot of the basic propositions in economics because we squeezed them out with our formalism is the claim in the book. And that um, – you know, and that relates, you know, to go back, you know, so the book is divided into three parts. The first part is um, basically about, um, you know, so I have, there's three meanings. The cover of the book has a growing tree on it. And so, and it's a healthy tree. And the name Living Economics um, is to indicate has, you know, three different things. The first image that you should have in your mind is that economics is a living body of scientific thought. It's constantly evolving, constantly improving. You know, we should be excited about it. It's an invitation. I want my book to be viewed not as a catechism, but as an invitation to inquiry to young people who are embarking upon economics as a career. That, that's who the book is targeted at. And, and so that's the first thing is economics is this living well, body of thought. Let me yeah. just do if I can adjust your marketing pitch, it, it's targeted to those people, but anybody interested in the history of economic thought and the ideas of yeah. modern economics will be interested in this book. It's not just written for a, sure. a graduate student in economics. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, that's who I had in my head as the yeah. primary. The second meaning of that is that if you look at the tree, it's a healthy tree because it has deep roots, right? And so what we have to do is we have to see these, you know, roots – and see, you know, where they, where we came from, right? And that's the reaching back to Adam Smith and then these great, you know, uh, teachers of economics as I sort of lay them out. And then the third one is basically that if you understand economics in the way that these people have taught economics, then you can't stop thinking about economics. It becomes an obsession for you 24-7, you know, as uh, David Friedman was – was visiting with us last year. And one of the things that David said, which I, I completely agree with him, is that um, he said the difference between economists like us and other economists is that we're not nine to five economists, right? We are 24-7, you know, economists. We think about it all the time. Well, it's and not just that. We, we don't turn off the economic way of thinking 
when we go home. It's not like we're working on our research at night when we're with, say, our children or whatever. But we think about incentives and we think about unintended consequences and we think about spontaneous order. Before – I want to – but I want to make sure we don't lose one stream of of what you were just talking about because you – it was interesting what you said about your book, the cover. I love that. But uh, you were about to say something else and I I don't want to lose it, which is – when you think about mainstream economics, the current or formal side of economics, they do have propositions, as you said, that link self-interest and rationality to um, invisible hand and self-regulatory processes that emerge and are not controlled or designed by anyone. But then because it's formalized, they often say, well, these formal conditions don't always hold and therefore leaving things alone has is fraught with market failure. Right. Uh, all kinds of other uh, problems that require government intervention. And I I think for me, uh, I think that is the – you can make a lot of criticisms of the formal approach. I think one of the subtlest and most important criticism of that formal approach is its tendency to confuse you and to deceive you into thinking you have isolated because it looks scientific. You've isolated – all the relevant factors, and therefore, what you discover is fact, mm-hmm. truth. Um, and I, I think those of us in the mainline tradition, the Smith Hayek tradition, they said they never said Smith never said Hayek never said you and I never say oh well people are perfect yeah um, and that's why we believe that markets are good yeah that's not why we we believe in, in fact. The, almost the opposite. Right. Because people are imperfect, they do the best they can. They learn. But because they make mistakes, because markets are constantly changing and outcomes are constantly changing, that's the reason to favor often a, a more or less a fair approach. And the mathematical apparatus, I think, masks that in a very unhealthy way. And for all the graduate students listening out there, uh, it's always a good idea to keep in mind that your model is to help you understand the world. It's not the same as how to get a rocket to Mars. Yeah. Getting a rocket to Mars is a very formal mathematical process. If you get the numbers right, the market, the rocket ends up at Mars. You get them wrong, it doesn't. Economics, for a whole bunch of reasons, doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think that if I, I kind of can follow up on that is that, um, you know, in the book, sort of make the argument that uh, the um, formal apparatus highlights behavioral assumptions, right? And that the focus is on those behavioral assumptions being at a sort of a, such a uh, thick condition that they make the invisible hand possible, as opposed to having very thin behavioral conditions, meaning that, you know, man is fallible but capable. Yeah, that's that, a good way to uh, man it. is uh, caught between alluring hopes and haunting fears, rather than this idea of being this calculator, lightning calculator of of pleasure and pain. Yeah, robots that – and that what reconciles our ability to do this is the institutional conditions, not the behavioral ideas. And so that the heavy intellectual lifting in economics is done by institutional analysis, not the behavioral uh, things. And and just to follow up, I mean uh, uh, Hayek in the essay – um, individualism, true and false, has a great summary of what Smith is talking about. He says, there's no doubt that Smith and his contemporaries were trying to find a system 
where bad men could do least harm rather than finding a system where perfect men could, you know, rule, uh, you know, justly Great utopia. Create yeah, and, and so it's all about finding – and he summarizes the classical distinction as saying that, you know, we're trying to deal with men as they are, sometimes stupid, right, sometimes smart, you know. Sometimes evil, sometimes, you know, what we're dealing with the men as they are. And then we're trying to find that institutional environment, which will marshal their base motivations in a direction which will generate the best outcome for the group as a whole. And he says the great uh, discovery of the 17th century philosophers, right, 17th and 18th century philosophers was the um, that it was the private property market economy. Yeah. So. Let me challenge um, your distinction between mainline and mainstream. You know, basically, you have a couple of essays in the book that that look at that evolution from a more um, – you might call it descriptive, narrative, non-mathematical, imperfect way of studying human behavior, which is the mainline smith Hive way versus the more formal structure that has become the dominant force yeah. in – modern graduate training and modern scholarship. Uh, two things strike me about that. One is, while it's true that mainstream is, quote, one, and that it dominates the formal way of, of modeling economic behavior and outcomes is dominating our profession, our guys win a lot of Nobel Prizes. Yes. That's number one. And number two, if, if our approach is, is the right approach, which you and I think it is, why don't we do better? Why is our side – why is it that when you go to the top five places – graduate programs in America or you look at the top – the 20 most influential economists in, in various ways you could measure that, why are most of the mainstream and not mainline? It's a fascinating question. I do think that I'm more optimistic even in the sense that we have a lot of young uh, superstars uh, that are emerging in the economics profession. Uh, they're not that young anymore, but they were young when they started and made this move in a direction towards a more institutional analysis. So you think about Schleifer and the uh, legal origins uh, work that he did um, and bringing institutions to the forefront, uh, Asimoglu and Robinson. I mean, there's differences between these various different people, and I, I don't want to suggest it as a homogenous group. And they may um, not want to be in the main line. They might still they, – I'm yeah, sure they, they consider themselves the, mainly But mainstream. what's fascinating is if you look at like what's – you know, what's uh, sort of one of the most popular books in economics – for 2012, what would be why nations fail? Uh, what's nations fail? That's Darren Asimoglu and, and James Robinson, which we and, did a podcast on. Yeah, and 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 so you have you know Robinson, you know, and Asimoglu running around explaining that there's this thing called inclusive institutions, there's exclusive institutions, there's predation. You know, there's all these concepts which are concepts with Mansur Olson talked about, which Jim Buchanan talked about, and which, Adam you know, Smith. I mean, yeah. it, it's and. It's very much in the Smithian tradition. Right. And so you can draw so much uh, – and, and that's not true just for them. I mean Tim Bessley and uh, um, just wrote a book a few years ago called um, uh, Pillars of Prosperity, which also goes into, you know, what are the institutional conditions. Um, and, you know, he was a former editor of the American Economics, uh, you know, review. He's a professor at the London School of Economics. So we have a lot of people that are around that are that are in the professional elite that are now – focusing attention again on institutions. A lot of this, you know, derived from, again, Bob Lucas, you know, is a genius, 
uh, when he wrote his paper after the Rational Expectations Revolution called The Mechanics of Economic Development, he set off a lot of people thinking about, okay, why are some nations rich and other nations poor? Why is it? An old, an old question. Yeah. An Adam Smith question, an yeah. increase to the nature and yeah. causes of the wealth of nations. So that's what I, I mean. I, I'm, I'm speaking too much at some level here, but you know, Smith's title of his book was called, uh, an, uh, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Asimoglu and Robinson's book, so many centuries later is called what? Why nations fail, which is really a modern inquiry into the yeah. nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Sure. We are dealing with Smith questions. This is a Bolding's point about the extended present. And so I think the economics profession, uh, is wildly open to a lot of the ideas here. Uh, they, what I find problematic in this sense is that, so for example, public choice. If I went and I talked to any of the sort of mainstream people. Public choice being the application of the economic way of thinking to political process. They would understand rent seeking and Joe Stiglitz, when he did his interview with you for the podcast, Correct. was he, he, Chose he knew his audience, right? He chose, and he focused on the issue of rent seeking. Right? Think, yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, there's some rent seeking in there. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and, and, and so he has the rent seeking story. As does Krugman when he decides to, you know, write is free trade passe. He recognizes there's an interest group problem associated with giving protectionist legislation for firms and whatnot. But rent seeking being that. Use of the political process by special interests to extract money yeah. from the rest of us. But it's not in their DNA. It's like right. a footnote. Whereas to, you know, if you go back to my point I was mentioning about Buchanan in the beginning, behavioral symmetry is not something an afterthought. It's not like, oh, I work out the model when I have behavioral asymmetry and then I say, oh, well, there's a possibility that. Yeah. It's instead that from the get go, it's a foundational principle. It's a foundational principle. And so I think we still have work to do. But it's so much easier because of the great work that was done by the people that I mentioned in the book, the Jim Buchanans, the Ronald Coases, the Armin Alchins, the Harold Demsets, the Israel Kirzners, of course, the F.A. Hayeks and, and whatnot. These people were so groundbreaking in pushing forward the, the ball that the conversation – and that's why I think – the Lynn, Lynn Ostrom. Uh, I think the – Mises. Mises, yeah. I think the reason why – uh, we can have this conversation today is because of people like Buchanan who cleared the way in a professionally responsible way to talk about older ideas in a new context yeah. that made them seem fresh again. Yeah, 1955 would have been tough. 1942 would have been tough. And I think it's um, – well, I'm like you. I'm optimistic. I always like to think it's up for grabs. Um, yeah. And the financial crisis is a is a horrible thing for families that are suffering in here and everything like that. The economics profession has seemed to not really change much. Yeah, that's but one of my later questions. Was, but it's why still is an it opportunity <laughs> for us to sort of talk about these ideas. Me, the only economics – part of the issue about the mainline versus the mainstream is that mainline economics is totally non-Keynesian. Right. <laughs> it's one of the – and, and – and, and, and in the, in the top essay of the book, which is, it was my Adam Smith, uh, lecture, um, uh, from 2010, uh, Keynes is the main target of my criticism in there. But it's really not Keynes, it's aggregate thinking in general. And I want to get us back to an economics which is focused, even though I'm talking about why some nations are rich and other nations are poor, which might seem Somewhat like I'm talking about yeah. aggregation, but our explanation is a microeconomic explanation. And so it's about relative prices. It's about incentives that individuals face, uh, the profit and loss calculus that they engage in in their decisions. 
And, and so it always traces back. So the way that to think about the, the main theme in the book is that while there may be macroeconomic questions, there's only microeconomic explanations and solutions to these issues. And so we want to understand the underlying microeconomics of why nations are rich and nations are poor. And that's why Asimoglu and Robinson are again important because when they start talking about the incentive effects that are generated by uh, extractive institutions in politics. Well, that affects my decision to how much I invest, how much I work and things like that. On the recession, I, I don't, I'm, you know, one of the things I have, we have coming in at George Mason at the beginning of this semester, we have Casey Mulligan coming in to talk about the redistribution recession. Because again, that is a micro foundations of what the problems are that we're, you know, dealing with here. And I think that's a capturing. And the fact that Casey Mulligan is out there making that kind of argument, in this day and age when the dominant approach has been an aggregate demand deficiency argument, we need it puts Casey him in the main, Yeah, it puts him in the main line uh, yeah. and see his podcast of uh, a few uh, month, a month or so, two ago uh, yeah. if you want to learn more about that because he's very much saying we forgot about this. Here's a different approach. Yeah. It's it's orthogonal yeah. to, to the sort of standard mainstream arguments you hear. Yeah. Um, I want to go to a particular point in the book that I found fascinating that I, I think I don't totally agree with you, but I, it, your book forced me to think about it in a way I hadn't thought about before. You have a fascinating quote from George Stigler, uh, and George Stigler was a, was a teacher of mine, had a, had a big impact on me. And if, you, if I had to summarize uh, George Stigler's view of political economy, it would be don't look at what they say, look at what they do. And if you want to know what somebody's intention is, look at what they do, yeah. not what they say. Um, and you quote him in there saying something a little more complicated than that. But that's the basic idea that when we think about political outcomes, don't think of them as uh, how people describe them in lofty terms. Look at who wins and who loses. There are mistakes, obviously, in politics. But Stigler's view, as you quote in there, is that uh, we get the outcomes that we want. Uh, which I, I'd say is a rough yeah. – uh, sorry, that's that's not fair. We get – don't treat the outcomes as random. Don't don't treat them as uh, how they're described. Look at who wins and loses and, and whoever wins. That that was the goal was to, was to help those people. And the problem I have with that, it's interesting, is that I think that's true at the individual level. And I, I, I think, you know, when you, when you want to figure out uh, what somebody cares about, you know, somebody says, oh, I really, I care deeply about my children, my family, you know, the football coach who quits his job uh, or is fired, <laughs> he resigns because he says, I want to spend more time with my family. And then six months later, he's got a new job as a football yeah. coach. And there, there are very few jobs that allow you to spend less time with your family than, than football coach at the major college or professional level. And so when I look at that, I always think, well, it's maybe after he spent more time with his family, he realized he didn't want to spend more time with his family. But maybe from the beginning, it was just something he said. And if you choose football coach as a career, you're not going to be very family-oriented. It's too hard to do. Um, so at the individual level, I think that's a powerful thing. You know, your, your friend tells you that he cares about you, but he doesn't return your calls. He doesn't care about you. Um, so that's a – don't look at what people say. Look what they do. That, that's a huge part of, I think, the economic way of thinking. But at the political level, I think one of the biggest fallacies that we have as considering 
government policy is to con- assume it's designed by somebody. Yeah. When it's in fact, I think it's often emergent. And so I find it interesting that um, we have this tradition in economics, skeptical, hard, hard-nosed tradition that oh, you don't don't look at what politicians say, look at what they do. But what they do, the they there is a big soup of competition. Yeah. Uh, the institutional constraints are very different than the competition that exists among, uh, say, car companies. But yeah. it, there's competition there. So I, I was struck by how, even though I think that Stigler philosophy or whatever you want to call it, methodology is useful, I think it misses a key part of, of what we have learned as mainline economists. Yeah, I think that that's, I agree with you on that. Um, though, I think the quote that I get Stigler doing is um, we infer intentions from outcomes, yeah. right? And, um, you know, obviously at some And my lo- response is I don't know what that means Yeah, because I don't know what intentions are. When people say, well, the government wanted – the government wants to do X, that, that's a dangerous shorthand. That's a different form of aggregated thinking that misleads. Well, I think the way Stigler was using it is is that we say – let's just use minimum wage laws or rent controls. Let's just use rent controls because one of his – you know, classic yeah. essays with was Milton Friedman on roofs or ceilings from 1946 that everyone should read. It's at a at a ideological level, it's a fantastic analysis of the effect of government controls on the housing market. As a an, a on a methodological level, it's outstanding because it's a, a perfect example of a event study before we had techniques of doing event studies. Yeah. Friedman and Stigler just do this fantastic. They compare San Francisco in 1906 and 1946, where you have a demand shock on the one hand and a supply shock on the other hand. Vice versa. To the yeah. Earthquake. Earthquake, supply shock, people coming home from World War II, demand shock, right? In the case of the earthquake, there's no rent controls. There's no evidence of shortage of housing. People lend out rooms. They do all kinds of things like that. Whereas in 1946, there's uh, price controls on housing. There's shortages. There's all kinds of things. Okay. So Friedman, and that's why it's called Roofs or Ceilings. This is an outstanding essay. But what's interesting about it from this point of view is that Friedman and Stigler are, or Stigler is asking, let's infer uh, uh, intentions from outcomes. So I might say as a politician, oh, I want to pass a rent control because I want to have uh, the least advantage in society taken care of, right? And what Stigler's, what the rent control does is it disproportionately hurts the least advantaged and it benefits this other interest group. And what Stigler says is it benefited that other interest group because that other interest group wanted that policy to benefit for them. That's what he's trying to do. And they lobbied for yeah, it. Yeah, they, they lobbied for it. They, they did all that stuff. Money and then he – you know, his method flips back on us by saying that if we could have found a lower cost way to bid them away from them getting what they wanted, that would have been a more efficient thing. So we get what the kind of government that we want, intentions – we infer intentions from outcomes, but the outcomes are, in fact, we get the kind of government that we want. Well, but yeah, again, I'm going to interrupt because the we there is is problematic. Sure. But uh, so, but but we, but the alternatives people did not form together. If I say to you the reason why that happened is because we face a collective action problem of getting together, he says, "Oh, you got to include those costs involved in your calculations," and it, it, it it's not stupid. To not pick up a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk if it costs you 21 to bend down to pick it up. And so this is where like Stigler pushes the argument in the end. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, my colleague Brian Kaplan has addressed a lot of these issues. 
I'm an older school public choice person in this. I think that we don't get the government that we want because we have voter preferences and they get fed into a machination of politics. And the machinations of – I'm much more like Friedman rather than Stigler in this regard. The machinations of politics distort what it is that the voters prefer and we get policy outcomes which are wildly at odds. And so this is sort of like in a more modern uh, guise of Friedman's position. This is like Arthur Brooks um, in the battle where he says that 70 percent of the American populace would like to have a vibrant free market economy. 30 percent want to have a sort of massive redistribution, more heavy government. But we end up by getting the more heavy government rather than the 70 percent, right, that want the other one. And I kind of think that, you know, if you – it. it there's incoherence in the in the answers that yeah, people give. I, I mean, it's that. hard to infer all that stuff. But I think Arthur Brooks has has sort of laid out kind of thing that we don't get exactly what it is that we want from. Yeah, but I, I just think that's the wrong way to look at. It. I don't I don't even know what that as I said tried to say before. I don't know what that phrase means. What we want. Seventy percent of us. I don't agree with him. By the way, I don't think. Let's take. But let's say it is given. Seventy percent of the. Let's say seventy percent of the people do want. Uh, a free, vibrant free market, and thirty percent want a uh, highly restrained, highly redistributive state imposing its will on the so-called market or on private choice. Uh, I don't. I have no reason to think it's not a majority rule. It's not a referendum. I don't. Uh-huh. I don't expect what, what I think. You know, it, it's uh, it's like uh, I, I just think that's the wrong wrong way to think about it. And I'm, let me give you a different perspective, and we'll close with this because I think it's uh, another issue that runs through the book. Um. I think in some dimension, uh, I, this it makes me uneasy to say this, but your book jog, created this thought in me. So I'm just going to lay it out. We get the economics we deserve, right? One way to think about the evolution of economics from what what Dan Klein describes as a presumption of liberty, which is basically things work best when they're left alone, but you know, sometimes it's a justification for the state, but we start intervening. But we start with the presumption that leaving things alone generally works well. And we've come to a different place now. We've come to a place, I think, in economics where there's a presumption of intervention. Of course, the, the market usually – and you talk about this in the book. Of course, the market usually fails. So we've got to make sure that the government's heavily involved. Of course, sometimes it's OK to, to yeah. let the market do its thing, you know, maybe for no iron dress shirts. You know, for that, you can have free market. But there's other places – Got to have intervention, education, health, blah blah blah. All the big, all the big ones. All everything's important, right? So, how did that happen? And you know, you could argue that the interventionist presumption that group, their work looks more scientific because they use more math. There there are a lot of different things that you could. And the academy is not very competitive. There are a lot of ways to justify it. But let me try this one. The average American likes intervention. Um. More than the average American, most Americans, you and I who are skeptical of, inter- of intervention, we're very much in the ideological minority. Yes, there's a long s- trend of individualism in America and skepticism about government, but, but a lot of people are captured by this idea, you know, keep government's hands off my social security. You know, they, they, they live in this schizophrenic world where the benefits that they get, those are the good ones. What other people get, those we need to fix and clean up because it's, it's wasted or it's horrible. So what happens – is that economics evolves to make those people happy. Economics responds, how do you be popular? How, how do you c- capture attention? How do you – what are the incentives we face as economists? Well, those of us like you and I who say that 
government should stay out of the business cycle mostly and has caused most a lot of the business cycle problems we have through Federal Reserve policy or, or fiscal policy, um, we're not very popular because we tell politicians and everyday people there's not much we can do. We're – it's best to leave things alone and when we interview, we often make mistakes. That's a tough sell. People don't want to hear that. They would much rather hear from the expert who can run the economy well. Mm-hmm. So those people, the people who create the economics that can justify that, they're the ones that, that thrive. Mm-hmm. And so John Maynard Keynes, right. I, I don't think there's a lot of scientific basis for his views. He might be right. I'm not saying he's wrong, but I think you're hard, you'd be hard-pressed to prove that he's right. Um, but he triumphs to a large extent yeah. because people want that. Um, well, look, Russ, I mean think about Hayek says that the – Curious task of economics is demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design, right? And if we take that as sort of the purpose of economics, that runs right counter to the intuitive way that people want to have things. There's a problem. You need to fix it, right? And we're going to sort of, you know, counsel this other kind of idea. So part of the argument that I give in the book is that economists would counsel – would be much more humble in their approach towards these kind of solutions. In fact, we wouldn't – be caught up trying to provide answers to questions that we as a discipline can't answer, right? Which sure. is one of the things, the incentives that are set up in the system here. So I'm not denying at all this issue that you raise about the incentives that economists face, that the change that has taken place. In fact, what I'm trying to do to a large extent, explain how it is that we moved in that direction. So I have a, you know, an essay in there, which is on the limit of economic expertise, it tries to argue um, using uh, kind of you know that we that the economists can be divided up into their self-image as either a student of society or they can be viewed as a savior of society. By the way, the term savior in the second volume of Skidelsky's biography of Keynes, it's titled "The Economist as Savior," um, and uh, and then I divide the state right into a world in which you have basically a night watchman state. So the state is a referee to the economic game or the state is an active player in the economic game. What I argue in there is that the mainline economists who thought of themselves and and emerged their ideas in a world where you had the state as a referee, the economist as a student, is at a disadvantage in a world where the state is viewed as an active player and the economist is viewed as a potential savior. And that that battle, those equilibria, I argue in in the book – are the two equilibria and any move outside of those equilibria is unstable because let's say that I find myself as an economist who's agitating for the economist to be a student in a world where the state is demanding that we need a savior. The economist is out of luck, right? He's yeah, going to get that's dismissed. A different way. That's a fancier way of saying what I was saying. Yeah, and, 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 a so, nice way. and so I think we want to be able to understand that puzzle. But if you step back and you think about our tasks as economic educators, one of the things that I rely a lot in the book as motivation is sort of other lines by Frank Knight and um, uh, Henry Simons where they try to talk about what the role of the economist is as an educator in society. And, you know, Henry, Henry Simons in the Simons syllabus, which all the great Chicago economists had read and trained up on, you know, he says that the primary task of economists is to be a prophylactic against popular fallacies. Uh, Frank Knight in his presidential address to the American Economic Association in 1951, it's called uh, The Role of Principles in, in Politics and Economics. And he basically argues that economics is applied common sense and that its message should be easily translated to anyone who has the ears willing to listen to it. 
And when they choose to not listen to us, we have to put on ourselves, what am I, you know, this is your, this is your uh, area. How do I communicate? We must be failing as communicators. Yes, we face difficult, uh, you know, incentives, but we also fail in our own, on our own right in our ability to communicate and resonate with people. And so I, I, as I said, like Friedman, like Hayek, like Mises, you know, I believe that you have a linear relationship between ideas. Ideas generate institutions. Those institutions generate economic outcomes. The institutions do that by having an effect on incentives and information. But ideas are ultimately where it's all about. And so when, when we talk about why it is that we believe since 2008 that we need to do certain steps, I think one argument is that, well, you know, interest groups are gathering together and they're making sure that the policies are done in a way that is directed to flow resources in their direction. I have no reason to doubt that or believe that. But I think that our first reason is that people believe that that's what the right thing to do is. So we have a sincere error that's being done intellectually. And that's where we come in as economic educators, where we have to take the burden of the responsibility of trying to communicate to the next generation the basic principles of economics so that they can become informed participants in their own democratic process of collective decision making, right? And 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 make those decisions cuz most people are making those decisions uninformed about what and about what the consequences are of the policies. So I have a very like uh almost uh religious uh uh, calling you're, you're aspect a of the teach you're, you're a proselytizer of the teacher of or economics. An, sorry, an evangelist. Would be Eva- a better way to say it. of the you're teacher a, of economics. Yeah, not the science of economics, which is totally different. You know, that's an invitation to inquiry. That's like I said in the beginning. The book is really about an invitation to inquiry, not a catechism about settled doctrine. Right? It's an invitation. You you know, do this. Start thinking in the way the economic way of thinking. It opens up all, all kinds of questions and exciting avenues, but I am evangelical about people teaching economics, right, and improving economic literacy. And improving economic literacy, in my mind, is that the mainline teachings of economics have to be taught. So one of the things I think we do a really poor job at as economists, teachers, is that our emphasis on technique has crowded out an understanding of the substance of what it means to be an economist and to think like an economist. And... um and so I try, you know, in the beginning of the book, I, I have a whole thing about what the tasks of economic education are. You know, what are the main principles? The biggest, you know, idea here without repeating myself is just that if you teach a course where you emphasize all the time the exceptions to the general principle, right, then what students walk away thinking about is the exceptions, never the general principle. And so I think we overteach in our principles of economics because we're obsessed with trying to make sure the students are prepared to go get a PhD, but only, you know, 1% of them ever go on to get a PhD. And so as a result, we kind of lose the love of the discipline, you know, with it. So Paul Hain, who I had the good fortune to be uh, close with and uh, ended up, I'd be, you know, jumping on as the co-author of his book after Paul died uh, um, too early uh, in life. But one of his mo- uh, mottos is teach economics as if it's the last class a student will ever have, and it will be the first of many that they will take. Um, we PhDize our principles of economics, and instead, what we should be doing 
is teaching the principles of economics with love and excitement and intellectual curiosity so that young students, whether or not they major in English to music to whatever, have some appreciation of economics and the economic way of thinking so that when we have as acute public debates like the fiscal cliff or the role of monetary policy in quant- which you know has become a public debate it's not just a right. debate among experts that they have some sense of understanding about what's going on and being able to reason and come out with reasonable position that they hold that might not be the same positions I would hold but they would be we would have a shared understanding of the substantive propositions so we could understand where one another's coming from my guest today has been Pete Petke. Pete, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Oh, thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.